Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Frivolous Gravitas. Uh, we will be taking a bit of a different um, approach today. Uh, we'll be looking at Locke's second treatise of government. Uh, but before that, uh, just a reminder that we are on a whole bunch of different platforms. So if you don't really want to watch us on YouTube all the time, you can check us out on Chris. On, out on RSS feed podcast players wherever you listen to your podcast links are in the description okay and that was chris he's our uh lovely co-host and i am jordan i'm probably gonna be leading this today and chris unless chris had read this before me <laughs> but it seems um seems that i've deep-throated kermit he still <laughs> hasn't got off duh that's a horrible analogy <laughs> you know we have you know, we, have people, we actually have people watching, you know, right? <laughs> okay. But the algorithm uh, won't catch that comment. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. They're going to think it's a Nixon innuendo. All right. So, um, like I said, we're, li we're looking at uh, Locke's second treatise of government today, which is, in my opinion, a very, very important document in uh, for the Enlightenment as well as for the development of the society that we have today um whether you're uh cynical about society today or like the way our society is constructed or uh you actually think it's you know despite its faults it has merits that make it better than the alternatives uh this is one of the er documents that uh, you should understand when arguing for or against um, any aspect of this society, which is why we're going to be talking about it today. Uh, so for a little context, it was written by John Locke in 1689. So this is a very old book, uh, and it was a very dangerous book at the time. He didn't publish it uh until the next year and he didn't publish it under his own name so that's why you see when it was published on all the old copies it says you know 1690 it was actually written the year before um and it was written in response to the glorious revolution in england which um saw the overthrow of king james the second uh uh and i'm look it up uh, oh, so sorry, it is King James second and seventh. It's the same guy. Because uh, he's a seventh of Scotland or something. And uh, the... Um, it's like a Star Wars reference, seven of nine. No, Star Trek. James seven of two. <laughs> and so, but it was he was overthrown by uh, William of Orange, who married Mary the second. Uh, who was the leader of the Dutch Republic, hence the Orange, uh, who became ruler of the um, British Empire, or the, uh, the English throne, essentially, at that time. And what was interesting about this was that it was relatively, relatively peaceful. It did spark off a war between England and France, but um, France was also kind of already eyeing them up. Um, <clears throat> eyeing up the Dutch land holdings uh, at that time. And there, you know, sparked off a war in Ireland. 
a bunch of uprisings, but there wasn't a, it wasn't a lot, it wasn't like the American Revolution or the Russian Revolution. It was just kind of, he walked in and said, I'm in charge now. Um, so what, now that is an oversimplification to the point of being absolutely wrong, but it's, this is the political climate of the time. There's a new ruler <clears throat> in England and he's going to bring in new, um, new laws, uh, specifically a uh, bill of rights that has uh, guarantees the rights of um, the free citizens in, uh, in England. Excuse me. And so in response to this, John Locke sees what's happening, writes these treaties on, against monarchy and detailing a the, the construction of a free society and how it should function based on uh, the concepts of natural law, um, commonwealth. And uh, one of the biggest things that currents that runs through this is that might does not make right, which is one of the biggest concepts. And you kind of have to keep it in your mind while reading this. And I do suggest you read this after you watch this or, you know, stop now, pause, read it, and then, you know, come back here uh so that you know you can uh follow along as we go i guess i think that's really important to like um underline too is that that was such common knowledge back then that like the the whoever wins a war writes history and that was just assumed to be okay like i don't know how to how to word that properly yeah so a a lot of times assumption that the public just had that whoever wins a war is right yeah, and he gets into this a lot, especially towards the end and in his chapter on literally called on conquest. Uh, actually, it's just called conquest chapter 16. And uh, he sees conquest as, well, he has a very dis- different expectation. So I'm just going to run through the expectation before. The expectation before is the sovereign is right to rule by God and has absolutely an arbitrary rule over them. So arbitrary means, you know, they have anything they say goes and they can make it up as they go. It doesn't matter if they contradict themselves. What they say at that point is, is law. This is the age or just a bit before the age. No, this is the age. Sorry. I was thinking 1689. I was thinking of a different year uh, of absolute monarchy. And so you think of absolute monarchs and you think of, um, King Louis, uh, the Sun King of France, Louis the Fourteenth, um, who was, you know, famous for saying um, the phrase, you know, "L'État c'est moi." So he's like, oh, you know, what is France? And he's like, "I am France," and everyone does has to do with that. So the the law itself is what that one person decides. This is arbitrary authority and arbitrary power. Locke saw this. Uh, now, oh, sorry. <clears throat> now, this is a use of force, so that he has uh, f- force on all this, and everyone else has to abide by it. Um, and so, when you take over another nation, you right, your might has made right. Now, you are the conqueror, the rightful owner of that nation, and subject to the the laws of the empire that has taken you over. Empire being a political body ruling over. Um, other political bodies. So you have a bunch of kings and dukes and some republics even, um, like in the Holy Roman Empire, which wasn't really an empire. But you see something like the Spanish Empire or the Habsburg Empire, ruling over a bunch of different things from Madrid. 
Uh, so that's kind of what we're talking about. Like modern republics too, right? Yeah, there were a few in there. Um, Venice was... Oh, like the states in Europe. The EU uh, is basically a republic of... Yeah, the states. Of other empires or whatever. Uh, yeah, so the states at this time was a kind oh, of I mean, under... The states now. The states oh, are governed individually as states, but together collectively they are the United Federated States or whatever. Yeah, that's not that's kind of more of a federation or uh, any union um, similar to actually the Soviet Union, which, you know, a bunch of states come together and we're all going to decide, okay, this is what we are. These are the rights of all of us, um, which was interesting, but something more like the Roman Empire, who's like, yo, we uh, we killed all your warriors. You're part of the Roman Empire now. And they're like, can we have autonomy and the Roman Empire is like, yeah, obviously, but like dues. <laughs> like, we don't care what you do as long as you pay us your taxes. Um, and, you know, we might ask you to come to war with us every once in a while or a lot uh, and build a giant wall along our northern border. Um, so what the difference is, is that you have independent countries and there's some really weird ones out there like, you know, San Marino, Luxembourg, which is still around. Switzerland was always independent. Um, which actually has a lot of interesting similarities to the modern America. Um, but um, I think that might be another discussion, the the types of political bodies. I want to get into another book uh, in the future. If this one turns out well, I want to get into uh, maybe Machiavelli, because that would be fun. Because <laughs> uh, I think, and I'm itching to read it anyways, so. But what he's looking at is, at this time, a future hypothetical, um, mostly hypothetical uh, polity that hasn't at that time come about yet and wouldn't come about for another, um, well, it kind of half came about with the Glorious Revolution where the king lost a lot of power and William of Orange was okay with this because he still gets to be king. and he quotes James II saying, like, I'm just the king. I have to obey certain things as well. But it wouldn't really happen until 1776, about 100 years later, where something like this would actually be tried. Um, and then again, in 1789, where something like this again would be tried and <laughs> absolutely fail uh, six times in a row. Um, so I'm looking at you, France. Um, so let's get going. So this was a very dangerous book at the time. And you can probably figure out why. Um, So one of the things he lays out, the first thing he lays out is that everything is based on something called um, natural law. And this isn't something that he came up with. This isn't something new. Uh, It goes back um, further than Christianity a bit. Uh, The Eastern... Way back, man. That was... Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. um, Greek mythology or whatever. What was it? Um, Ar- not Ariadne. That was the one with the thread. In um, Iliad, what was her mm-hmm. name? When uh, her- Hector gets dragged around and she says, no, I get to bury my brother because oh. there's a natural law or rule of order. Yeah, Hector's wife. Oh, man, it's it's bugging me that I can't remember her name. This is yeah, bugging me. Um, starts with an A, I think. Oh, you look Antigone. it up. Antig- no, no, yeah. Antigone. So, isn't it? Yeah, look it up. I'll, I'll get into it. But yeah, it does get in... It's like 800 BC at least. It goes way back. Well, the Iliad would have been about 1200 BC or 1221 or something. They actually, they, they found Troy, so they, they dated it. But um, 
the uh the story itself is probably um about that old tomb if not older uh okay that's gonna trigger some historians but whatever uh but it got caught a lot of natural law got codified within um Roman law, Eastern Roman law, like during the Byzantium period, where uh, you see the Justinian code saying stuff like bees are naturally uh, um, can be taken whenever because uh, they are they cannot be tamed and therefore cannot be owned. And therefore, anybody can just go take honey from any beehive they want. Um, <laughs> so this is like, you know, this is the way the world works and we have to follow it. And this has severe implications for us nowadays, but that's not today's discussion. So natural law is something that governs us all. It includes things like gravity, includes things like you're not going to fly off of the ground unless natural law dictates it. And, you know, natural law dictates that if you put a stronger pressure wave under uh, and a lower pressure wave here, you can levitate with velocity so that you can have an airplane. So an airplane follows natural law. It works. Natural law being what we are learning through the observations of the scientific method. But there's other things because we have to know what it is to be a person in order to follow natural law. And Locke really gets into this. So, so he, let me just bring this up here. So one of the first things he gets into is, um, well, is that we're all born with recourse to the way they understood it at this time. And at this time, everyone's Christian. Everyone. And I don't care what you say. Well, there would have been outliers. Of course, there would have been outliers. But people are Christian. It's just like people believe in science nowadays. That's the way it works for them. Now, this isn't so bad. This isn't just, you know, we can't just blatantly say they're all ignorant. Because what they believe is that the God that the world exists according to the tenets that God laid out. It's not some magical thing. The God, the world exists the way it is because God made it that way. Humans exist the way they are because God made it that way. It's unchangeable. It's un, <coughs> excuse me. It's unchangeable because uh, it was made in a very specific way. Now, this can be. Uh, Locke, all throughout the book, refers to um, natural law as something, you know, God did. It's something that humans can't change. Anything humans can do is according to natural law. Um, but, <laughs> there is a but. We are the only animals that can corrupt natural law, that can make decisions that go against the best interests, whereas animals... Uh, and everything else in society has to, or by its very nature, um, obeys the law. So a cat will act as a cat was intended to act. Humans can act contrary to their nature, i.e. I won't eat that jelly donut, even though everything in my, everything in my being is telling me I want to eat it because, you know, sugar tastes good. So eat sugar, but you can go against it. Now, this he claims is for the betterment and the safety and blah, 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 all that. So man has to exist within this natural law. And when he exists within it, uh, as a, uh, within nature, he says, uh, we are, 
Um, well, let's get into this. Okay. So by nature, uh, okay, here we go. Sorry. I'm just trying to find the, the, uh, So the state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone. The reason which that is law teaches all mankind who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another life, health, liberty, or possessions. This is the basis of pretty much his entire uh, work here. And he goes on, and may not, unless it be to do justice to an offender, take away limb, uh, impair life, or what tends to the preservation of life, liberty, health. All right, so I read that wrong, but essentially what is going on here is that everyone is human. And this is a different way of looking at it. Before you have, he's creating this different structure here by saying in section five, this equality of men by nature, uh, sorry, by nature, uh, the judicious hooker looks upon so evidence itself and beyond all question. So he's seeing that the way the reality that we live in is constructed is that humans are all equal. And we take this for granted now. Um, and we actually take it so for granted that in one of our biggest documents, we say, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, uh, you know, and endued by inalienable rights by the creator. And this is essentially what he's saying. That is a paraphrase of Locke. And how this works is that you have this God, a structure of God, and beneath them is all of humanity equal to God because we're all just animals in the wild. Now, the structure that would have been had uh, beforehand and everyone would have seen it like this would have you had God and you might have had the Pope underneath him. And then you would have had some, you know, cardinals or knights off to the side and maybe some kings and emperors. And, you know, right at the bottom are those who are not equal. And this is, you know, we're not equal based on uh, might. So those who can wield power, wield might. And this is not how Locke sees it because, again, Locke does not see might being right. He sees everyone already having right uh, in inherent to itself. But there is a catch. People can still go around stabbing each other and taking all their stuff and, you know, generally enslaving and being just jerks to each other. This is good for the individual but it's not really good for humanity as a whole and just essentially create suffering. See our previous episode, I guess the Remembrance Day episode is a good enough one for this, explaining why it's bad because war just causes suffering. There's nothing much else to it. (coughs) Excuse me. So in uh, in chapter two, he lays this out a lot. And he says that because we're all equal under God or nature, you can use them interchangeably for my Christian audience. I'm sorry if that triggers you a bit, but um, there is a lot of atheists and it's still applicable. I'm saving this for all the atheists and the agnostics out there and the non-Christians because I feel like it still applies. You put nature existing as it is, whether or not God created it like that, isn't actually um, 
necessary for the conversation. Um, but it, it does kind of, it, it still works. So you have everyone being equal under the law and we have inherent aspects to our being that as a result of the way we are that make it so that there are things that we shouldn't do to each other that allow for us to have uh live a better life so these are you know the first thing are uh life so to be alive you need to be alive that's it that's inherent to who you're being health you need to be healthy you need to not uh this includes you know having all your limbs and stuff not chopping off hands and stuff uh ripping out eyes um coughing on people uh who when you think you might have a virus uh that kind of stuff um liberty which is again um the ability to talk to anyone to the ability to go anywhere the ability to think anywhere you want the ability to uh do what you think is best for your skills essentially if you think it would be best to be a farmer go be a farmer you should have the liberty to make a decision yourself instead of having an absolute ruler tell you that you need to go cut rocks or that you need to just not exist for the sake of this and possessions and this is like oh i don't like possessions but you know you got a lot of hippies talking we don't like possessions we don't want possessions are bad he's definitely coming down on the other side of this and saying possessions are inherent to our being we need to be able to the individual needs to be able to own things in order to secure the rest of their rights and in order to secure happiness for themselves in order to secure um what they need so you need to be able to own the tools that you have in order to uh do your work because work is very very important to Locke, and we'll see that in a bit and so to laying us out he says being all equal in section six i'm going to read it properly now and in being all equal and dependent because we are all independent of each other and we all are all equally human so i'm an independent separate but equal version of every other human about there i'm distinct uh we are all distinct from each other even twins uh no one ought harm another in his life health liberty or possessions um so essentially he's laying out here because we're all equal and because we are the way we are these are the four rights inherent to uh every human um but not always so let's get into that so these are the rights that he thinks that everyone should um should abide by or respect in other people but he's saying this within the context of society and he goes on in section seven uh and lays out is it section seven well, it's chapter three where he lays out that within humans exist in kind of two states and this is going to be a theme and it's good if you keep this in your head while you read this the entire time is that there's two contexts that humans can live under there's the state of nature and living in a commonwealth and we all generally live in a commonwealth um even in the worst nations you live in a commonwealth some commonwealths just are better than others 
but um, the <coughs> excuse me. Uh, now, a state or nature is exactly what it sounds like. You have this state where anything goes. Your rights don't matter. They can be taken at any moment by anyone who wants to take your stuff. Uh, your life is yours to protect. Your life, your possessions are yours to protect. Essentially, uh, it's not exactly anarchy because he does get into anarchy very briefly here and there where everyone just kind of pretends they're not living in a state of nature. But um, he goes on in section seven, um, the execution on the law of nature is in that state put into every man's hands, whereby everyone has the right to punish the transgressors of the law to such a degree as may hinder its violation. So essentially, if you think someone shouldn't have that thing, you just go and stab them and take their stuff. Everyone is on their own, essentially. And this is what you see with um, people that existed essentially before uh, states did. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of one of the things that confuses me about the way he speaks about natural law. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I'm assuming other people probably have the same confusion as I do. That's why I'm going to ask. But like the natural law of, you know, the world is a volcano doesn't care if there's people living at the bottom. It'll just, it, it's a volcano. It spews right. lava, it kills people, whatever. Yeah. Wolves don't care if they steal another wolf's food. Right. You know I mean? So to say yeah. that there's a natural right to property, it, no. it more okay. specifically yeah. means a natural right to protect your property. But he's using the terms kind of like, He's conflating them together. He's saying on the one hand, you have natural rights, but on the other oh, okay. hand, you have a right to protect your rights. So um, then they're not really natural. You do have a, so that's, I was going to get to that. So in a, in a commonwealth, I guess I should just say this right out. In a commonwealth, uh, you have those rights. In a, uh, in a state of nature, you do have these rights but you're the only one that is there to help secure those rights. Um, so a commonwealth essentially is to him, any society that comes together, uh, it's not democratic. Uh, uh, let's see here. It's just Where an organized it? like agreement, a contract, a social contract, right? Essentially, yes. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Geez, I'm pressing the wrong button. I think those are the words he uses as the social contract. Uh, no, that would have come a little later. Um, but the... Okay, here we go. In section 133, by commonwealth, I must be understood all along to mean not a democracy or any form of government, but an in, any independent community. So any time people come together, and he says this ad nauseum afterward, is to, for the good of the people. So protect each other. So we, we give up that pure freedom that you can have in the nature to do whatever you want, to live as nature wanted you to, blah, 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 blah. That noble savage as Rousseau would. And, and Rousseau would have definitely popularized the social contract uh, ideas. And that would have been in about 40, uh, 40 years after this. But the social contract is a good way of putting it as any, uh, because you're, you're making that social contract. I give up certain aspects of my freedom uh specifically the uh i delegate my use of force 
to the Commonwealth, whatever you want, whatever your particular group uh, wants to, however your group wants to order it, um, to that body so that we don't just go around stabbing each other for each other's stuff. The state, rather than being an arbitrary top-down imposition of um, of a force, rather its sole purpose in Locke's estimation is to protect these rights. So we all come together in order to protect each other's, uh, you know, I guess essentially strength in numbers. We come together uh, and we federate to um, protect each other's property, uh, to help each other, to be in a place where we can help each other out, uh, to um, it's to withstand the biggest benefit for everybody, right? It's the exploiting of synergies, like we talked about in our markets. Yeah, it, essentially, yes. And a lot of a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that comes out of that is this, but mostly he's in. Uh, like we can come together and and, and as a uh, as a group to protect each other, but so can a mercenary band who will live under no law but their own in that state of nature. And people can hire these barbarians of any society. Um, That's where I think his definitions are a bit off, though, because when you say. There's a natural right to protecting your rights. That's that's congruent. That makes no, sense. No, that's not what I said. No, so, I didn't say you. I said he. No, when he well, says that. Not, no, because what he's saying is that you don't have you don't have a natural right to it unless like if if someone okay how about this well, if you're in a state of nature <laughs> no but if you're in a state of nature your right is to you do have a right to the stuff but everyone else has a right to stab you for it. So we confederate and exist in a different um, social contract in order to secure these rights. So you're um, making an unnatural law to establish and maintain a natural law. That's the right. conflation. Right. So in this natural law. That's why law, I think his wording and his definitions are off. Well, he's also writing about 400 years ago where they're diff using uh, different terms than we would today. So There's I'm, I'm trying. Wrong with being critical though. Right. Uh, so what he's going on about is that um, the essentially you're living in a state of nature where um, essentially is rule of force and violence, and you, you can you can confederate under a monarchy, and you are subjecting yourself to an arbitrary rule, which is your choice, but you can. Um, how do I say this? You can't. Uh, okay, what was your, Sorry, your question again threw me off. What was it again? What I was trying to do is help the listeners understand from where when I listen, I get confused. I wasn't trying to correct you or change anything what you were saying. Okay, but what was your question? The way he uses the words are in contradiction with themselves sometimes. He'll use the same word natural law to mean one thing as well as another thing. He'll use it on the one hand to state that we have the ability and capability, and he'll use it on the other side to say that we have uh, an entitlement to that type of action or behavior. And they're two sort of separate distinctions. But he uses them interchangeably, and that's what's confusing to the listeners. I was just trying to help elucidate that if somebody out there is also hearing you, it's not that they're misunderstanding or that you're saying it wrong. It's that he actually uses yeah. language that's not perfect. 
So by natural law, I would say that's, you know, the way God created uh, the world or the way the world exists. You can't go against what is. The world is what it is, and you can't really change that. So I guess this is probably my bad because what rights you have, you have in that. You just have them. You have the right to be alive. That protection of those rights isn't guaranteed under natural law. Um, And so you have the ability, as long as you're alive, to be alive and to be healthy and to own things. Um, but you're not, that's not protected because someone can just come on and be like, you know, stab, give me your phone. Oh, oh, phone. But, uh, <laughs> but the natural but, law to that would be you have the right to defend your, to protect yes. your own natural rights. Yes. Oh, yes. To the best of your ability. Right. But so what we're doing is, is we're establishing an unnatural government yeah. to protect your natural rights. Right. And he's There's trying to wrong with that. It's just the words he's, that he's using are being conflated together. Right. And the, you do have the right to protect yourself. But the problem is, is that if you're not, if you're living under a state of nature, which is what the thing I should have been using. So state of nature being, you know, stone age people, essentially anybody before, uh, the first republics came about where everyone's kind of like, okay, we're all in this together. Uh, what do we do? Um, when the first uh, governments came along and people started questioning things like slavery and, you know, just violence for things. And so in a Commonwealth, we can come together and you can have a whole bunch of guys with sticks going like, Oh, you can try and take my stuff, but you're not going to be successful. It's a protection of it. you and the state or the government its job is to uh provide for that protection that's the sole purpose of the government and the sole purpose of the government i should really get move on into war um but the i think it's important that you dwell on it though because we still have those types of defenses in court like the only Mm -hmm. defense to murder is either it was an accident or it was in self-defense right so this is going to make these are still pertinent to today oh yeah definitely this is 100% 100% pertinent today. Yeah. So I'm going to get into war because this is not going to make sense. I think that's my oversight here is that I haven't been explaining war. And Jordan's going to talk about war again. Go figure. No, but uh, to lock war is something very different. Now, when we think of war, war is an armed conflict between um, uh, groups of people that have a disagreement that ends up usually being dumb. But um, for the most part, there can be just wars in Locke's estimation, but that's not part of today's conversation. So a state of war, it, so you're not, you don't go to war. What happens with Locke is that you enter into a state of war. And in, um, what chapter is this? Okay. So I'm way ahead of myself. So what happens is that you have these rights according to natural law and you don't have protection into them. So in a state of nature, you can't actually have war. Everyone's just kind of out for themselves. You're, you're, you're doing this. War is what happens when in a commonwealth, someone is trying to, or for some reason, in violation of someone else's natural rights. So, and these again are, you know, life, health, liberty, and property. So if any of these are being infringed upon, you are in a state of war. So within the Commonwealth and without, so you can imagine something like um, uh, a war of conquest and a lot of this where you are a genocidal war, where you are infringing on people's right to live by 
killing them unnecessarily or you know vikings going in stealing and thieving which are infringing on vikings definitely living in a state of nature <laughs> um they did not confederate very well or much until about you know, maybe the ninth century or historians yeah well they did eventually um but the they always they, sort you're, of you're, had you're, a family structure but a clan is not the same yeah, thing as a government yeah it's you're kind of you're into yeah anyway you're right so you're taking away their right to property or you're taking away someone's health uh especially with something like slavery he has a long chapter on slavery where essentially uh where is slavery here uh it was short but essentially you can yeah, it gets into how it goes but essentially slavery slavery is just a state of war extended so you have you know you're going to kill someone but instead you just take their body and you you deprive them of their rights and this is essentially what's happening in our society when you get a speeding ticket when anything judicial happens to you when you have a qualm with anyone else you're technically according to Locke, would say you're in a state of war with them where you're discussing are your rights actually being infringed here and a lot of our laws well, most of our laws should be um, a lot of our laws were made without recourse to thinking about how the system is essentially supposed to be constructed where you a lot of the laws fall into a violation of one of these four rights um murder the violation of the first uh theft a violation of property um kidnapping a violation of liberty uh and possibly health um and so slavery is a violation of well most all of them because you have also you've taken away their right to life and you have the authority of life and death over that person so you are in a state of war and this i think is actually absolutely fascinating because he boils instead of war being about the violence itself war is about the ends of why the war is happening you're taking stuff away you're depriving people of stuff and he moves this into um a place where it's not necessarily needed that you need to be in, our, in an armed conflict or fight a duel to resolve this when you make it about that then you can solve your differences in a very different manner than would have been happening before so you move into place of civil society where you have um both well, I guess both men and women have rights. So uh, where you have, I don't know where I was going with that. What was I talking about? I'm sorry, I lost it. <laughs> you were talking about transitioning into civil society by accepting mm. or adopting some type of principles right. that allow the enforcement of protection of rights. Right. So to understand war like this is making it so that you are no longer necessitating, necessitating yourself to constantly be in a state of conflict with everyone else and you do this by federating into a commonwealth but it's a lot more complicated than that so i'm going to move into how he essentially does this or what his conception of what a properly functioning com commonwealth should have or even look like now he doesn't preclude the fact that um you might want to, that there might be cultural differences in fact he on many occasions 
accounts for this saying your group might want to naturally just want to have a monarch and that's okay keep in mind that your monarch's power should be not arbitrary and limited to what they can do because again everyone the the tenants that he's going by the one of his first principles is all men are created equal so however you set it up even the most powerful people have to be subject to the law so this is one of his first things in a commonwealth everyone is subjecting themselves to an agreed upon law where they uh all come together and know how to act within that so you know you're not allowed to kill everyone agrees on that you're not allowed to do this you're not allowed to infringe upon these rights and however you set it up from that basis um is up to you you can and he goes in and says like you know some people in uh some native american tribes may want to do this um and he does say that native american tribes have and one tribe in brazil and a couple ancient greeks have set this up before so you know don't think this hasn't been done before uh and don't think i'm like he's arguing also that he's not just pie in the skying here and this is something that has been tried before um though not exactly like this he also doesn't draw lines very clearly right saying no. there's some leeway he doesn't say where the leeway starts and stops he says like a culture should be free to like you know say they want to sing and dance before or sing the national oh, yeah. anthem before school starts in public education yeah but it doesn't say anything about the coercion for the people who dissent no in fact he he, he acknowledges that and he acknowledges that everything is going to be uh well everything is going to be relative not relocated but uh filtered through reason so you're not going to have and he doesn't lay it out because he's like societies change over time and you're going to want to have your society change in fact if you want to sing before the national anthem and all of a sudden that becomes cringe for some reason you want your society to be able to change uh because there's going to be different circumstances the people's opinions are going to change you're going to have understand different things um you but forcing well, cultural adoption though is sort of where uh, i'm I, I don't really care about the national anthem thing as the no. example what i care about is the fact that there's a coercion at play which violates people's natural rights right which, he, which completely sort of goes unaddressed because it's like if you have the right to have some cultural affiliation towards your natural laws then ipso facto there must be variation between cultures otherwise mm -hmm. there'd be no point in even mentioning it and if there's if there's distinctions between cultures whatsoever relating to natural rights, then they can't be natural rights. They're not natural in that case. They're cultural rights. Do you see what I mean? Like the, the terminology gets confusing a lot of the time when I try and understand this stuff. Like, for uh, example, if you give a culture the natural right to have some type of cultural rights, as soon as those rights are different from another culture's rights, then they're not natural rights, they're cultural rights. Because a natural right is universal, it's inalienable, it's never changing. Right, and so he's outlawed um, natural rights as things that all humans have, like every single human, regardless of whatever, has. Uh, men, women, like people on the far side of the world living on an island, this is something that's inherent to every person. And beyond that, you don't have any strict structures as to what you have everyone has property everyone can hold something and say mine and every culture everyone is alive everyone has 
the ability to feel sick and be healthy and full of limb. Uh, and everyone has the right to use their, uh, their mind in their own way. Beyond that, that's up to you. And beyond that, there's no rights. There's no cultural rights. There's just culture. Um, you don't have a right to your culture. Um, it's just something that you yeah. do Let as a group. A different way than with taxes. If you have a right to property, you have a right to earn your own money. But being part of a society that protects your natural rights means that you have to agree to a social contract to allow taxation. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they appropriate your tax money, you're you're voluntarily giving up some of your natural right because you can't object to it. There's no dissenting. No, because you're freely giving of it. You're, you're allowed to give your property to other people voluntarily. Right. Um, but if you decide that you want to live in that society and disobey the law of the society, the society has the right to become to. a natural right. Right. Okay. So the he he does this. He addresses this a bit uh, when he gets into war a bit because yeah, he talks about he, it a lot. But it's confusing though. That's what right. I'm, it's, I'm trying to get you to gets, explain it because it's hard to understand. So when you are, um, when you are, so say someone. You're in a you're in a commonwealth and you're living and i'm just living in my house and i have my property i'm alive blah 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 i have all my rights and they're not being violated excuse me geez um but someone comes in and decides they want your property so all of a sudden you are in a state of war and he allows for the fact that you can just um how do i put this uh actually there was a good example of this uh 204 excuse me i think what you're probably going to bring up is that he sort of he allows for um corrections like corrective measure yeah so, so you are violation occurs it requires another violation to offset it almost no. always. whether well, that's the law enforcement and putting people in jail no enforcement of the law isn't a violation of your rights you no, I didn't are putting your what i'm saying is it's a violation of his rule what it is, is, he's saying in order to correct a war, there must be a violation on the opposite end to offset it. No, because when you're right. at peace, you're not allowed to violate people's rights. But if somebody comes into your house and tries to take your house, you're allowed to violate their rights to defend your own property. Okay, so yeah, this is exactly what I thought you were. So let me find the... Um, uh, yeah, I was trying to just elucidate to it while you so were looking for it. To this, he answers, the force is to be opposed to nothing but unjust and unlawful force. So you are allowed to use force as a person, but only against unjust and unlawful force. And only in the position where you, uh, let's see here, 204, uh, where you, there we go. And I think he, he says something no, about commensurate force too, doesn't he? Here we go. So a man with a sword in his hand demands my purse in the highway, when perhaps I'm not 12 pence in my pocket, the man, this man I might may lawfully kill. To another I deliver hundred pounds to hold only willest I willest I light. So you know he's just hold, he's got a hundred pounds, so he doesn't actually have it on. It's in the bank or something. Uh, so to so to another I deliver hundred pounds to hold only willest I light, which he refuses to restore me. So you've given I, I've lent someone money, and they're not giving it back. So he's violating or my right to prime property. Uh, Huh? It's a war. 
it's a war. You put it yeah, right, but you're in a commonwealth, this one. So, which he refuses to restore me. When I am got up again, but draws his sword to defend the possession of it by force, if I endeavor to retake it, the mischief this man does me is a hundred or possibly a thousand times more than the other, perhaps intended me, whom I killed before he really did me any harm. And yet, and yet I might lawfully kill one and cannot so much as hurt the other lawfully. The reason whereof is plain, because the one using force which threatened my life, I could not have time to appeal to the law to secure it. That's the key. Uh, and where it was gone, it was too late to appeal. The law could not restore life to my dead carcass. The loss was irreparable, which to prevent the law of nature gave me a right to destroy him, who had put himself into a state of war with me and threatened my destruction. But the other case, my life not being in danger, I may have the benefit of appealing to the law and a reparation for my hundred pounds that way. In so, my opinion, that's the most important part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I knew that was that, an important That's part. the really complicated, hard part to grasp is where um, his terms are are separated right so he realizes that you know people are going to try and cheat at no matter what and he says the only perfect person was adam who obeyed natural law perfectly because he was adam and so beyond after that everyone was just kind of trying to figure it out and wasn't good at it and we screw up and we try and cheat each other some people are better at it than others but when you when someone tries to cheat you and you're living in a con when you're living in a state of law you know, everyone's under law not in a state of nature you are and you've subjected yourself to this artificial law code um so that you can live in harmony with each other and someone tries to you know game the system like we see like every single day heck i game the system when i say if i drive five kilometers over the speed limit i can get there faster so I'm cheating the system. Or when it's I not jaywalk, that. you walk yeah. across the street in the wrong spot. You're you're disobeying a rule that's meant for you're everybody. You're disobeying a rule. Now, not all of us agree on jaywalking because jaywalking was pretty much put there in order for an excuse to persecute riot uh, strikers in the 30s. But when this is, he understands that some people are going to cheat the system, and you may have to act in a state of emergency someone's trying to kill you. And so, you know, you kill him before he kills you first because, you know, you're in a state of war and there's no way to deal with that. But if it's something where your rights aren't in immediate danger, then you can just, then if you have the recourse at any point to appeal to the court, then that's what you have to do because you have, again, once you've entered into the Commonwealth under law and live under law with everyone else, you are acceding your right to violence uh, to the the whole, essentially, which is, we talked about this a bit uh, in our book, not our book, on our look at um, uh, uh, start the Starship Troopers concept, uh, citizenship, service guarantee citizenship, one of those where we, we looked a bit into that episode when we looked at uh, the state has the monopoly on violence and this is why uh in in a state the 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 state has a monopoly on violence because so we don't have that ability to just go around stabbing each other because you know there's a power that can come around and be like that's not lawful we're putting you away so this is that social contract we all give up our right to to violence in order that we can just you know, live in our nice little house and not worry about the neighbor coming over and uh, just stealing your lawn gnomes or something. And so um, this, 
is um, I kind of want to get into, uh, he gets into, I'm going to skip over uh, parental power. Um, and I'm also going to skip over uh, another type of power because he lays out three types of powers. Wasn't and the parental one really big though for him? It was. It it was, and he actually argued because he argues could summarize that, it briefly without getting into it. Then, just so that we know what we're skipping. Yeah. So parental power is limited, and it, it's the power of children. So children can't exercise their right. You, as a person, a citizen, someone who lives in the Commonwealth you have to be able to understand the laws you have to be able to understand what you're getting into and he says that up until then the mother and the father have uh, authority over um all of the of their children in order to you know raise them up make sure they know what's going on until they reach the age of maturity he doesn't mention an age because this is smart because not everyone matures uh at the same speed or even matures at all and, and sometimes so, the elderly need the same protection as children yeah when i realized that growing up i was like oh man these 80 year olds are acting like teenagers that was a shock to my system mm-hmm. <laughs> so um he also gets into slavery but he goes on length ad nauseum a lot of this is um small pedantic details but essentially slavery is an extension of war uh slavery is a state of war and you are, uh, and it shouldn't be a thing. This was, um, I find it neat that, uh, let's see here, the three powers. Let me just quickly find this because there was a chapter. He talks about it early and then he talks about it again later. So I'm just going to quickly try and find that. So in answer to your question, um, talking about paternal power, uh, he lays out paternal power in an entire chapter. And then in another chapter, he says, I'm not going to discuss that because I discussed it above. And then he has an entire chapter describing power again, where he describes it again. Yeah, I guess he thought, got to it and thought it was important. So chapter 15 on paternal power and political despotical power and considered together. So to him, there's three types of powers um, that a person can wield. There's uh, at least within... Um, the realm of government he's not talking about like electrical power or anything like that <laughs> any of the scientifical forces um nuclear power yeah a person can read nuclear power well maybe but there's three powers that a person can uh exert within human relationships and one of them is political power uh well first of them is paternal or parental power and it's nothing that which is nothing but that which parents have over their children. That's it. He says it's like a weak power uh, to govern them for the children's good till they come to you the aid to the use of reason or a state of knowledge wherein they may be supposed capable to understand that rule, whether it be the law of nature or the municipal law of their country. Oh, eh, that they are to govern themselves by. Oh man, it keeps going on. Uh, capable, I say, to know it as well as several others who live as freemen. Okay, that's not important. So essentially just the power over parents, over their children to make sure that they turn into adults. That's it. That's that's as far as it goes. They don't have the ability to kill them. They don't have the, they shouldn't have the rule to uh, just snuff them. I took you into this world. I should be able to take you out of it. I hate when people say that. It's not true. It has no bearing effect. It's not funny. Stop saying it. Um, but yeah, it's pretty ignorant <laughs> yeah um and it tells me a lot about the person saying it yes it uh, does <laughs> so what the law of projection 
All right. So political power in his mind is the power, and I'm quoting here, <coughs> that keeps this thing in my throat so I can't talk. The power which every man having in the state of nature is given up into the hands of society. So all those things that you could do in nature uh, turn into political power. So that's what he deemed politics, the ability to, you know, issue decrees and like you can you can say no one touch my stuff but the society can say you you delegate that to society society says no one touch his stuff uh society delegates law and order so that's stuff that you give up when you're living in the bush to live with people in a society under a law that's political power those are political powers and therein and uh, to the governors with whom the society has set over itself the representatives and, and trust in that okay so then he puts a further power that he has, which is despotical power, and it's pretty self-evident based on the name, is absolute arbitrary power one man has over another to take away his life whenever he pleases. Uh, so he sees this as, this is a power which neither nature gives, for it has made no such distinction between one man and another. So nature didn't say, yo, Steve here is the best person. Everyone should listen to what Steve said, and only what Steve said. This is essentially a monarchy. Uh, King Stephen the boring and so everyone nature never really puts anyone over each other nature just kind of makes people uh based on nature and so it never says okay this guy is the guy nature or god never said uh, which you know the catholics are just sitting there seething right now because they have a pope god didn't put the pope there people put the pope there according to Locke. Uh, this is why this is a dangerous book um so but just to be clear it's not just christians it's all theists yes oh yes christians because they're the predominant yeah domination or whatever he can also get away with this because he's living in england lucky uh <laughs> so this is the types of power he get into so uh not only to take away life but also property before i get into how to construct the state i do i i was remiss in defining property so let's do that because he says you know the state's there to protect your right of property and then to allow for the protection of the other rights but mostly it's there to protect your property because you can't really do anything without property and here's why because what you because what to property to him is what you put effort into anything that you put effort into becomes yours whether by the use of money or through the thing so he says you know property makes things and he has a very actually well thought out economic argument but um and i this is one of the places where i disagree with him a bit but not completely but you can't give someone property they have to actually put effort into it and that that's what makes something yours you go and put the effort into gathering the um what you need to survive you go put the effort into building your house you go put the effort into um into anything like you put effort into making money so that you can exchange that effort through uh the market into getting a toothbrush into getting pencils into getting paper and all that stuff and this is what happened and he says nothing is uh nothing is given because that's not really how nature works everything needs to be you need to have an exchange of something and that thing that humans put effort into you need to be able to change what you know god placed here into something that's useful and he isn't a naturalist because he goes on to say like you know wilderness is nice but it's not very productive uh someone with a hundred acres of you know wilderness and all that wealth that they have that's 
not half as good as if someone had one acre of tilled ground, which is producing something and ends up being a hundred times more valuable. And this to him is the benefit of, you know, coming to a commonwealth because we can leverage our property to increase the happy. We've talked about this ad nauseum in our podcasts, like on markets, in economy, when we did a whole bunch of stuff. But um, he does lay a claim, which I don't know if I follow too well, where we of you know things we value maybe i could take a stab at it but he says that we shouldn't hoard and i don't know because we only should produce up to what we need and then beyond that we you know could give it away or something or sell it but yeah go ahead i think the reasoning to it is it's disincentivizing people from being productive in that synergistic way if people can take from other people's investments. Mm -hmm. So if you till a soil in a farm and somebody else can come and steal it, it reduces the incentive for you to invest in your property to till a fertile uh, farm. Mm -hmm. Economically speaking, in that synergies way, where we're all collectively getting together and surrendering, surrendering the same rights equally to all have part of that same social contract, the point of it is to extract the greater benefit from the group. Yes. And you can't do that if you don't have a security of the value of your input, the efforts that you put in towards the productivity coming back out. So as as soon as um as soon as a person isn't able to keep and accumulate wealth or or you know any goods of trade or currency or whatever, mm-hmm. um it creates a, a the opposite effect where people are just going to start looting and violating other people's rights in in the extreme. Right. Like the trains in California right now, but, <laughs> or the better example, if you haven't seen it, go look it up. But, uh, it's, but one of the uh, classical examples, which actually probably happened previous to this being written was the Thanksgiving story where, uh, um, Smith comes back on, sees the Plymouth colony, and it's all in disarray, and everyone's essentially doing communism, and nothing's getting done. And he says, okay, you don't work, you don't eat. And all of a sudden, the colony is like, starts gathering up steam. And it's a, it's one of, it's part of the the, the Thanksgiving story uh, that, you know, Americans tell each other every day. And it's, you put in what you get. So we're all living in this together. And I think that is where he's coming from you can't have uh and he's critiquing not like the lazy poor what he's critiquing mainly is um i would say the idle rich uh who are hoarding this land and i'm trying to i've been trying to find this the whole time because i well there's there's two sides to it too though is like um on the one hand he doesn't want people hoarding because hoarding only secures a greater wealth disparity and a wealth disparity will also cause the same calamity that you're trying to avoid by mm-hmm. organizing uh, social groups and social structures or politics or whatever. Right. And on the other end of things, you don't want to disenfranchise people from putting in effort if there's no way they can secure their rights to the produ- uh, produce of that that effort. Right. And so he says here, and indeed it was a foolish thing as well as dishonest to hoard up more than he could make use of. If he gave away part to anybody else so that it perished not uselessly in his possession, those who made use of it, uh, these he also made use of. 
So a good um, example of that is like Disney with their intellectual property, you know, by, by hoarding the rights to their like Mickey Mouse and stuff, but then not using it. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they're preventing a whole bunch of other people who would like to use it and create content, but can't. Yeah. And they're hoarding it for no other reason than just the intellectual property. Right. For gaming and- companies like game developers, if there's a whole community of people who want a remake of a game, but the developer's not interested in making the game, it just sits there and nobody's allowed to touch it. That's yeah. what it by hoarding. Well, and he's not even arguing for charity either, because he's saying everyone has something that yeah. they can give. And you can and he says further if he gave away part of uh uh he also and if he bartered away plums, he would have rotted a week for nuts that would last good for his eating for the whole year. He did do no injury. He wasted not the common stock. So he's saying like everyone in society has something to give. And the, the, the particular landowners I was talking about who like have all this land that they're doing nothing with and it's producing nothing. And he's like, they have all this property that could be used to the common good, but they're, they're just kind of this is my land and sitting on it and not doing anything with it and he's saying like uh someone in his estimation who is tilling land of 10 acres uh has more wealth and has more dignity than uh you know a rich man who has 100 acres of wilderness or something so this to him property is important because property is one of those things that you 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 need and I I do agree with it. Property gets short shrift nowadays. And why can't we just have bikes in common? Why can't we have this in common? Because, well, I like my bike a certain way. I don't want to co-op share a bike. My bike is, I can tinker with it and, and make it fit me. And I can lend it out. But we're in a state of war. If you break it, when I lend it to you, and because we're in a society, I go to the government and say, well, I can go to the government or we can solve this between ourselves. And so... And it's we, not really freedom either to say that you have to give up use of your bike, right? Right, exactly. Like there's nothing wrong with having a society that has a sharing economy as well as an ownership economy. A lot of right. people like me wouldn't want their own car. I would much rather just have a borrowed one that I don't have to deal with. You right. Know what I mean? And if you not ask everybody's me, like me. Well, and if you ask me, Jordan, can I borrow your car? I'd probably be like, yeah, but not on thursday uh, and so because you know i get first dibs on my property but at the but same likewise, time i wouldn't lend my computer to anybody because of how much effort and time and work i put into building and managing my computer right right and this again to me wouldn't be a free exchange i'd be giving you up my car but you know my friendship is of value but at the same time you know, I might call in like generalized reciprocity. I'm not going to be like, well, you owe me this much. And I've seen people run uh, lives like that, but generalized reciprocity in that kind of relationship would fill the uh, gas tank, wash it, check the tires, something. Make sure it comes back in at least uh, as good a condition as you got it. And then all of a sudden I have a clean car. Oh no. (laughs) And so we have benefited each other. And this is why I don't, I find it very, off-putting when people say well, we don't need property we don't need exchange well we just just give everyone what everyone needs it's like that's that's kind of evil <laughs> and that's <laughs> exactly me. what marxism did it went mm-hmm. to that extreme with everything yeah like well if you can be this productive for profit then you can be this productive with the government taking all of your profit people mm-hmm. are like no <laughs> i would much rather go to bed early and see my family thank you very much <laughs> yeah so in let me just quickly pull it up uh let me just quickly pull this up uh 
Like, who's going to do overtime without getting paid overtime? That's why we have overtime rules. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, hold on a second. You can just cut out the silence. Um, so, what? So, instead of, um, <laughs> instead of going into a critique of Marxism, which I've done before, see my episode, I Left, and uh, for a bit better one of that, I'm going to get into what he considers the government. So, we already, I already, went over how um, the government's purpose is to uh, protect the rights of the civilians. So the government, this is what's meant when the Americans say for the people, by the people. And it's, everyone thinks it's all, you know, hokum and, you know, jingoism, American jingoism, but these words do mean something. It's not some mumbo jumbo. Uh, they say it for a reason. And so, uh, in Latin, he says it, one of them, salus populi suprema lex esto, the health and welfare of the people should be the supreme law. So the government is there to serve the people. And this to now, well, obviously that's, that's what it is. This was not, this was a revolutionary concept back in 1689. This Still was, is. People think that we live in some authoritarian regime here in Canada because of COVID regulations. And well, like, even when you vote in the last election, you know, everyone's voting for, well, you know, Jagmeet Singh's going to fix the country. Oh, uh, what do you call it? What's his name? Uh, Justin Trudeau is going to fix the country. Oh, this party or that party is going to fix the country. No, you're hiring an administrator <laughs> and know that and know you're hiring someone who's limited. And this is, and well, actually here's why, because Locke set it up in just this. He didn't set it up. He thought of this in this, this way. And the founding fathers, Jefferson was actually a brilliant writer. Changed my mind. You can't, I'm sorry. He's just the way he used words, <clears throat> but back to Locke. He set it up in a way where um, you are okay. So he asked the question, "How do you set up a nation?" And first of all, he says, "Well, the easiest way that everyone would assume is conquest. You just conquer it and uh, <laughs> and White set it people up." People like to call it colonizing. We're <laughs> uh, expatriates colonizing. Yeah. Uh, so. Conquest, he says, though, doesn't do it because he says of conquest, many have mistaken the force of arms to be for, for the consent of the people and reckon conquest is one of the originals of government. But conquest is far from setting up any government as demolishing a house is from building a new one in the place. So he sees conquest as just destructive. You're not going to be able to set up a new thing via conquest. He says, first thing is first set up laws so the first thing you have to do is set up a legislature a, a legislative body which he gets into ad nauseum and i'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty but essentially because it's, it gets a bit pedantic <laughs> um it's very but, dense too like it's well thought out but it's really dry it it is but every once in a while he'll just come out with some little bit of snarky wisdom that just makes you go <laughs> prologue did that to me but so the he set it up in three powers and this might sound familiar and this is why so he said it's set up in the legislative executive and the federative 
uh, and the federative, he didn't actually care about what you called it. He just says essentially uh, chapter 12, sorry. I'm just scrolling here. You can join me on my scrolling adventure as we look for, here we go. Okay, so the first and fundamental positive law of all commonwealth is establish is establishing the legislative power. Why is this? Because the legislative power in our country and the Americans in all of the modern democracies uh, is the body that makes the laws. They that's their only job. They make the laws, and it's separate from the other two powers. Um, they he, he doesn't see them as something that necessarily always needs to be. Uh, so, you know, there's not always laws that need to be made, so they don't always need to be sitting, they don't always need to meet. Uh, they only need to meet when it's necessary for them to make a law, or to amend a law, or to talk about a law. And generally, other than that, they should go back to doing whatever they do. Uh, he doesn't really say much beyond that, or how many people should be on, because that's up to whatever you decide your constitution to be. And the ones that work best will be adopted by more and more uh, commonwealths. Um, so these people on the legislative body are subject to the laws they have made. Obviously, everyone in the commonwealth is subject to the laws that are made. And this should be, he says specifically, a diverse group. And this doesn't mean they should be made up of different you know, races or anything. They should be made up of different representatives of the different bodies in the group. So you have workers, you have the general aristocracy, you have people that represent the military, you have people that represent uh, the plebs, um, you know, like a, like a tribune or something, that would be a good idea. Uh, you have someone that represents different areas because, you know, one area might have only farming and another one would be by the coast and they'll have different needs and they'll have to bring that to it. You need a diverse body to represent as much of the population as possible uh, without um, obviously forcing everyone to engage in politics because that would be a waste of everyone's time <laughs> diversity statements yeah they're diversity it's never statements. about forcing diversity the point of it is to be most effective this is what you would do yeah cover it's all the really bases about the function it's not about the appearance or the, the rule of it i think people take that out of context a lot too mm -hmm. yeah oh definitely um <clears throat> So uh, here we go. So the legislative power is that which has the right to direct how force of the Commonwealth should be employed for preserving the community and members of it. That's it. They make the laws and see how uh, it does. The um, executive and federative of the community are also distinct. So these are separate powers, the three separate powers. This is why you have the separation of powers in the states, which they teach you in social studies. The executive is the power in being. So that could be a king, uh, the monarch in Canada, or the president uh, in, um, in the states, or, uh, you know, um, general secretary Basically and, the branches of government though right the oh yeah this is what this is exactly what i'm explaining this is why we have it set up like this so he's their job at the executive is to be the one who executes the law not like execute well, i guess they would execute but they're the ones who carry out the law here's the law okay the legislative doesn't do anything beyond that the executive is the one that executes the law for the citizens so you can see this as an internal power structure the one who makes sure everyone's obeying the law and deals with it if someone doesn't. Um, and this is in Canada, this is held by 
uh, well, it's supposed to be held by the provincial premiers, which are supposed to handle internal matters, whereas the prime minister is supposed to handle external matters. But it's a lot different. A lot of times, um, this is divided up into a Senate and the Commons. But um, anyway, the one it works with, but is separate from, is called the Federative. And he says, uh, he doesn't really care what you call the Federative. He just needed to use a word. So you, apparently, he says whatever community wants to call it, they can call it that. Uh, but the Federative is essentially the power of war and peace, leagues and alliances, foreign policy of the group. So this is the foreign policy division. This is the people that make sure that, you know, they are safe from external threats. The the group acting as a whole against others, whereas the executive would be the group acting against itself or for itself. And the legislative, the group defining itself. So this separation allows them not to, because if, if the executive gets a hold of the legislative, which you know, is always, you know, when you see someone in the States, maybe even brush up against that, which happens every like couple of years, someone will like have a slip of the tongue and they'll say, you know, what if we got this and, you know, the pointing judges and stuff like that. Every time a judge gets appointed, all the Americans throw a fit conniption and rightly so because, and this has happened for hundreds of years because they should throw a fit conniption every, every, uh, every time because they have to make sure that the executive does not gain control over the judiciary because then the executive can just say, I am the law, l'état c'est moi, and you have absolute authority in the guise of a republic. And it's the same for the federative, and then you end up with a, uh, you, you can end up in a state of war with other countries unnecessarily. So this is how it's to be set up, but it's not he doesn't say that this is how he doesn't he's this is not a guidebook this is a theoretical piece this is a piece saying okay here's the first principles your government should be uh going on this is not a, a guidebook here have this many have do this he's like do it the way you want but make sure that the government is for the people and not for the king now the problem is is that and he does give the executive power uh, per what he calls uh, prerogative. So this is what we call in the States, you'd call it a, uh, an executive order. Uh, in ancient Rome, you'd call this a dictatorship where, you know, they'd have two consuls, but like if the Carthaginians were getting uppity or a barbarian was at the gates, they'd be like, oh, yo, you are in charge. Take care of that. And, you know, for six months, they'd take care of it. And for a while it worked. And so, you know, when something beyond the law needs to be done quickly, because he understands that the law isn't going to cover all its bases, that sometimes you're going to need to make a decision that has no bearing on the law, like uh, unexpected things happen all the time, and you need to be able to make a decision quickly. But the decision needs to be put in check and make sure it's, you know, again, uh, what was the term I used? Uh, Salus populi suprema lex esto. So for the good of the people. And so, but the obvious, basically it's just some oversight. It's to, the point is to try to eliminate there being any one, one person in power making one, right? Decision, right? Mm -hmm. so that's sort of the mm -hmm. idea of the, the parliament and the Senate too. Right. There's a check and a balance, not 
that's why there's usually three bodies of government is so that two check on the third, the other two check on the other third, etc. Yeah. And this is coming off. This isn't just him coming up with this off the cup. Like no. he's not just being like, I'm a genius. I came up with this because this comes back it comes back from natural law. But you look at the British tradition and he, uh, he goes into, he, he's pretty aware of the British tradition, but you have the Magna Carta where you have the king who's in check by the nobility. And then later on, you have those two powers being in check by the, um, uh, by the commons essentially. And so you have, um, and after, after this, um, this was the beginning of the, this is the start of English common law. You'd start having the judges, the legislative start forming, uh, ever so slowly over the course of the next hundred years in Britain. But he's, um, he's coming off of a tradition where he's seen powers acting against each other. And this is what made Britain strong in the long term. Um, because they survived, like Britain lost all of their holdings, uh, except for a few in France, uh, which actually they held a lot in Normandy, uh, Aquitaine, Gascony, and, uh, and Cannes, but um, they lost them over the course of the Hundred Years' War. But the monarchy survived that, they survived the War of the Roses, uh, the, the polity was strong enough to withstand these the, 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 these, these earthquakes because nobody was able to make massively stupid decisions. That doesn't mean stupid decisions weren't made on a regular basis um, because they were. Uh, but you had this tradition and he goes into saying how James II later on would say, you know, I'm not the king because God made me. I'm the king to help the people. I'm still living under God. And so he goes on to say this this is there's already precedent for this even in england and the and we take this to be and we almost we do take this for granted nowadays because nowadays oh we need someone who just gets stuff done it's like that's the opposite of the thing you want <laughs> you want people you want a government that belabors every point annoyingly ad nauseum you want them to actually sit there and talk for days you want that that's that's an ideal is you want your government to sit there and just talk until they're exhausted doing their actual jobs and, and there's excellent evidence for this all over the world like china and russia and you know there are countries who do have that type of dictatorial power and they do get stuff done but what you end yeah. up with is dams that fall over you know flooding over countrysides wars that the people don't want You've got yeah. all types of problems that arise from having been surrounded by yes men because mm -hmm. you execute all of the uh, all of your opponents or people who, who dissent or disagree mm -hmm. with you. And that's that's exactly what we're trying to prevent with this type of social structure mm -hmm. and organization is to minimize the harmful damaging effects of human psychology. We're trying to maximize human potential while also recognizing our soci social psychology is inherently flawed. So like we're trying to create structures and systems that get around our faults through recognition of them. And that's another one of the huge reasons that I promote philosophy so much is because that's a lot of what it's dealing with is figuring out the social psychology and then figuring out rational solutions and logical progressive solutions to those issues rather than just demonizing people and saying, oh, we should all be communists and just be one happy family with kumbaya. 
That yeah. doesn't work because humans it's, aren't well, built that way. Well, communism is a it's it's a theology essentially. Yeah, it, but it, it's patently false just by evidence. Like if you ever look through human nature, there's always been a prince that tries to get power by killing his own family members. There's always yeah. been people who murder other people for their stuff or men who rape women or other men for that matter, um, or committing uh, to people to slavery and things like that. So knowing how we are, the best way to get around that and produce the biggest benefit to the biggest number of people, the utilitarian sense is like what Hobbes would say is to basically organize yourselves in the best way that minimizes the amount that you have to sacrifice to get it. That's sort of the point to the whole thing. Yeah. And the Hobbes, not Hobbes, um, Mill, the utilitarian uh, philosopher, um, who's definitely worth reading. Um, and utilitarianism, utilitarianism uh, besides getting missaid, uh, is often misquoted and frequently disquoted um, by any and people who have only cursorily read him. There are problems with it, but it's definitely worth reading. And that would be 160 years later, maybe, um, around that, because uh, Mill was writing in the mid-19th century, and this is happening at the end of the 17th century. So the, the these, these ideas do flow into each other, and they are uh, coming off of each other. And I think, uh, let's see here, the purpose of government, he says, and I think this came out great in section 219, was where there is no longer an administration of justice for securing the men's rights, nor any remaining power within the community to direct force or provide the, for the necessities of the public, there is certainly no government left. And this is a negative definition, as obviously, because one of the things he gets into after defining what government should be, when this is uh, securing men's rights, it's the first thing. Now, men, he means men and women. And he's specifically said this when talking about, he does believe men have certain uh, responsibilities uh, to lead and stuff like that, but he kind of sees them still as equal because they have uh, equal but distinct roles in society. So men and women. I don't care if you think it's sexist, it doesn't really change the thought if you change it to women at all. Um, for securing men's rights, nor any remaining power within the community to direct the force. Sorry, they are the power within the community to direct force to provide for the necessities of the public. So um, these necessities being law and order, these necessities being uh, emergency, I guess, provisions, disaster relief, that kind of stuff. Um, we've expanded that quite a bit. And it's juries out and whether that's been a good thing, but um, these are the basic things that the government should be doing. And if it doesn't do that, so if the government gives you candy all day and you say good, but they don't, you know, do their most basic things, then what do you do? What as an individual within a commonwealth do you have the right to do uh, with regard to uh, the government? And he gets into this in chapter uh, 19, which is called the dissolution of government. And so on section 214, it's starting to sound like a thing. He says, um, so your government starts falling apart, which it naturally will. And he sees government 
as a transitory thing. Your government isn't something you should be married to. Your government isn't something you should be like, you should guess be loyal to it, you know, more than any other nation because you're the one living in it. It's like you should be loyal to yourself because you're the one being you. Um, but that loyalty comes with, you know, restrictions. That loyalty comes with a caveat, which is um, when such a single prince sets up his own arbitrary will in place of laws, which there will which are the will of society declared by the legislative and legislative change, you have the right to revolt. And so revolt means exactly what you think it means. You have the right to, and he just, he uses this word differently than uh, re rebellion, which he seems like, anyway, we'll get into that. But revolt is literally armed conflict against your, uh, your oppressor. So, um, the best example of this was the American Revolution. And they did this probably the most effective out of any revolution in history because they started by setting up the legislative. They started by declaring what their government was with the, with the, with the, with the, um, uh, with their constitution and their declaration of independence because they saw that they were being tyrannized uh, and you know, they were, their property was being seized and they didn't have control and they didn't have representation in the Commonwealth that they were taking part in, which, you know, if the crown would have given it to them, history would have been different. But they saw this as uh, not the, as the government having absolute authority over them and not having their rights, which they had read in certain books like uh, this one and uh, Montesquieu and Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke and all the writings of all these guys. And they had seen this and then they did the right thing by setting up the rules first and then took up arms. They didn't just start taking up arms, but they figured that they had the right to do this as people. And this gives them, this is one of the things that they saw giving them the right to do this. Um, so just there's one, very- Just one quick comment on that too, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, just for the for the relevant today sort of um, yeah. reference or whatever, Black Lives Matter is essentially taking this the exact same way. They're basically saying that since we all uh, agreed or glorified the revolution and the independence of the original oppress uh, oppressors and tyrants or whatever, that they're feel they're feeling that they're in the same position now as as Americans were to the British back then. So yeah. the Black Lives Matter protesters who turn rioters and who are getting violent and this is their justification. It's basically based on the American upbringing, like glorifying the forefathers and the philosophies that led to the founding of the states. I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying right. this is the philosophy, their ideology. They're not just say... blind idiots trying to break things. They literally believe that they're being equally um right and yes. i have no problem with a group saying like black lives matter um i have massive problems with the with the the, the group black the, the group black lives matter and the institution of black lives matter like black lives obviously matter but that's a forced contradiction and i i kind of want to do an episode on uh on uh maoist contradictions because you say something like Black Lives Matter. And it's like, duh. But then the contradiction is when you say all lives matter, you know, everyone else, 
it becomes a dog whistle for tyranny, which is incorrect. That's a contradiction. So that's something that they're trying to do. Now, that's neither here nor there. I just kind of want to do an episode on that, and I have to read a book by Mao, and I don't want to read it. <laughs> and um, but I really but don't want to read the that. The reason why but I want it's to really point it out is that. But no, but you, you're right. You're drawing a good parallel because what I'm getting to is that they've set up autonomous zones and more power to them because this is kind of what he's saying. If you think you're being, uh, your rights here are being, um, you're infringed. So they set up Chaz and they set up that one in Portland and then they set up the one in, um, in Minneapolis. The problem is, is that they're setting these things up saying that, you know, this is an impressive, inherently impressive institution. And we, we don't want police, we don't want this. And then they don't attack the government itself. Now, I'm okay for you setting up your own thing and trying a, a, an experiment in government. Go for it. That's, that's kind of what this thing's saying to do. But you have to, you have to be smart. You have to sit down and think about it. You can't just set up an autonomous zone and say, no, the food's only for black people. You're, 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 you're creating the same, exact same uh, problems that the government that you're claiming the government was doing. Now, the other thing is, is if you attack private, if you attack private, if you attack the police or any institution of the government, that's almost more legitimate along this philosophical line than if you attack gas stations and supermarkets and uh, you know private property, because that is just people living, and you are acting in a state of nature when you are attacking that. And if they fire back at you, I have no sympathy because they are protecting it. But the, and the so, other crucial point, though, is that they don't need to do it. No. They could all form a Black Lives Matter political party, get themselves elected into government, and they could change the laws. That's the crucial point. They're not even right. trying to do it the peaceful way. They're no. jumping straight and to revolutionaries because that's how they rile the base. So this is interesting. Because I found this in section 228, you know, whatever. You look, I'm saying that for the people watching. He says, if they who say it lays a foundation for, so they are putting themselves in a state of war with those who made them the protectors and guardians of their peace are properly and with the greatest aggravation, rebellions and rebels. So he's, he's kind of using re rebel and rebellion a bit differently than revolution. Revolution is where you grab your gun and you say, we're going to enact a better government because you, the one you're doing right now is arbitrary and stupid. And so you use, you use force as a group to in, establish a new group. Now, but as a last resort though, right? You're right. supposed it's to exhaust last all of the processes and protocols in place already. And then right. still being oppressed. Then you go to that. Like, so it's not the first resort, <laughs> but he's, he, he, he kind of makes it sound like, and this is me reading into it. So don't, don't think this is him is that what black lives matter is doing and what all of these people are doing is rightful. And you're allowed to conglomerate and resist the authority of the government by essentially protesting by essentially doing things in opposition to the government to show the government that they need to be better. So it's the duty of the citizen to when they are uh, being treated improperly, when there's some uh, some misappropriation of power or when uh, rights are being violated unbeknownst to the government to make themselves heard and in that way rebel and revolt when absolutely necessary. This is why they have the Second Amendment, because the Americans know that their government is not infallible. That their government is infallible. Their government Double is negative. fallible. 
The government is fallible. <laughs> sorry, double negatives. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I should do better than that. But, and so they say, um, and this is why he's not a pacifist. He wants peace. He wants people to live in peace, but he knows that that's not how nature works. He knows that that's not how humans work because there's always going to be people who try and cheat the system. There's always going to be people who'll be like, you know, I could become King Washington, which didn't happen. Although there's some like interesting games. I think Civ Civilization did one where you could play as King Washington of the Kingdom of America. And um, there was an attempt to say, hey, why don't you become the dictator? And everyone's like, and even Washington was like, that's not how this works, buddy. <laughs> Jefferson and himself, so, I think, set up the term limits to get himself out of presidency. They told him he should run again. He's like, nope, I don't want that in my country. Right. I, anyone who badmouths the founding fathers hasn't studied them because those are some interesting guys. Um, you don't have to agree but, with them to appreciate their their concern and heartfelt. Oh, no. Input, you know? Uh, like I didn't agree with everything Jefferson says, but he, damn, what could he write? But, um, this, so him on violence, he says, if an innocent, honest man, uh, must quietly quit all he has for peace sake to him who will lay violent hands upon it, I desire it may be considered what kind of peace there will be in a world which consists only in violence and rapine and which is to be maintained only for the benefit of robbers and oppressors. So essentially, if you say, um, it's better to live and let live, it's better to live in peace, I'll just let them take my stuff. You know, it's like when, uh, when you work at a, what do you call it, a grocery store, a retail job, and, they, and someone comes in and says, give me all your stuff. And then the company says, just give it to them, you know, just give them whatever they want. You can see the results of this happening in California right now, you know, no one convicted under $950 of theft. Well, guess what that does? And then all the companies are letting it go. And so what he's saying is don't lay down and let people walk all over you, fight and be ready to fight because this is something, the Commonwealth, which is, you know, you have created this thing for the benefit of everyone. It's not something that's given to you, something you have to make. It's something you're taking part in. And it's something you have to be willing to fight for because if you don't, Violence and rapping, so just going around taking and raping, will be the rule. You have to stand up. So he's saying, like, this is not a pacifist thing. You need to be able to um, put up. And if it's if you're not willing to fight for it, a lot of times um, it must not be that important to you. So he's but, and just because you're willing to fight for it doesn't mean that you're expected to like it's right. like a cold war between the people and the government the government mm. needs to know that the people can fight back so that they they don't overstep and the people need to know that they're going to be expected to if the government oversteps mm -hmm. but in an right. ideal world there's a balance you know the people yeah. don't overstep the government the government doesn't overstep the people but you need that threat to be there mm -hmm. and not like a yeah. threat like i'm threatening you I mean, just the threat of no, knowing that they can. Right. I mean, like, and like you threaten your kids. The threat of not getting elected is a great threat. Yeah. And like we threaten all the time. It's part of who we are because we need, it's, it's, it's an awareness of Boundaries. the consequences. Boundaries. And, and, and everyone makes fun of it, but you know, an American um, with a shotgun in their foyer uh, knows that there might be someone coming in and there might be put in a state of war where they need to use it quickly. And that, 
almost the shotgun is almost better tool of awareness of the fact that what you have is important than actually using it. Nobody wants to shoot anybody. And if you do want to shoot someone, you shouldn't actually own guns. But this doesn't, this, this is, he's talking in a time where, you know, you have swords where uh, a musket is the thing. (laughs) Yeah. And so to duel. And yeah, that was so stupid. Dueling was dumb. (laughs) But guns actually, and I, this is what I'm going to say, guns equalize this. We make each other equal. The strong doesn't matter anymore when you can put a 45 through someone's heart. It doesn't matter if you're a 90 pound woman, if you've got, you know, nine ounces of lead. And so it equalizes this equation. The threat can be made by anyone now. And it's, this is not, and the gun isn't the only tool either. The protest is a tool. A lot of people are using it wrong. And, uh, you know, showing up, look how many of us there are. It's like, you're not demanding anything specific. You're just showing solidarity in a cause. The government doesn't care because they're like, you want us to change anything? We want you to change. And then they go back to their work because you're just standing there. Because nobody shows rebelling. up to vote. <laughs> yeah, you have this one point of rebellion every four years, and then you decide to yell about nothing in front of a building yeah. with no one in it. <laughs> exactly. And that so, to me is the problem. People would rather bring a gun to a rally or a protest than read a book and vote. Mm-hmm. That to me is tragic. Because like yeah. the opportunity to read a book and the opportunity to not get shot are luxuries that we have that humans didn't have for a long time. Yeah. And we're not using them. <laughs> that to me is no. insane. You're not well, actually nice- trying to fix anything if your first resort is the last resort. Right. And I do have my last resort and I keep my last resort sharp. Yeah. Uh, well, and you should, and, uh, everybody should have a last resort. And that's why I own need- firearms is because I understand that the Canadian government, as much as I love it, as much as I hate it, isn't an eternal thing. And it shouldn't be an eternal thing. You know, we could have Canada 2.0 we'll be sitting there sipping, you know, margaritas and eating pizza. That's a, that, if you get that reference clap, but saying, man, this is way better. And all we had to do was, you know, complain a bit, fight a little, and now posterity is just going to have this Canada 2.0. Why not? If it seems good, but you know what? Canada's doing okay for now. It's things are changing and we have yet to see where they go. But, you know, if stuff hits the fan, I want the tools to be able to live in a state of nature and be able to form a commonwealth with other people in the right way. And this is what a lot of people dream of when they say, I want to go on and live in nature. I want to, I want to go and live in a commune. They're, they're dreaming of the fantasy of creating a new commonwealth according to hopefully better rules, thinking that they can make it better. And then they, they, they drop it because this is hard. This was like Locke wasn't a, a intellectual slouch. He was probably smarter than, uh, <laughs> Well, anybody uh, I've ever met. <laughs> well, anybody associated with this channel, including viewers and me. And so, well, maybe, but he thought this out long and hard. And the founding fathers of the states talked about it for, you know, they had tons of these congresses, which um, oh, they were just drinking the whole time. It's like, wouldn't you? <laughs> it's, 
but they also um, had like the, thousands of years worth of historical thought right. to, to to pick from. They didn't and just when, discover it all on their own. Like you said, it was right. an incremental process over time. So when Canada was created a hundred years after that, well, ninety years after that, ninety-one, um, the they got together and they talked for like days and days and days and had a bunch of conferences and were discussing it like as hard as possible based on all the precedents set. And they came up with something that allowed them to create a free society within the monarchy. Uh, although the, the, the monarchy was just like, yo, you need to give more autonomy to the colonies because that's a lot of land. Uh, and so well, they also um, had that whole issue with Australia, right? Like they had already just kind of gone through it. Was it the Balfour Declaration? Because there was a guy who went around to the colonies in the 1840s, essentially, or the 1830s, maybe it was the 20s. Uh, I think it was Balfour. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And the Balfour Declaration, look that up. And so essentially he said, uh, we have too much territory and there's too many people. We need to decentralize the empire. And that happened. They decentralized a lot of the empire and made it easier to govern uh, and gave Australia and Canada specifically uh, a lot more autonomy. And then Canada had to figure out being the dominion of Canada. Well, how are we going to construct this new country? And this is what happened. And for those who say in the States that they screwed up and in Canada who say they screwed up the natives and the black and the African-Americans, well, yeah, of course they did. <laughs> yeah. They couldn't get rid of slavery if they wanted the union. It but took I don't hear 100- anybody complaining that we figured out a way to not go to war, but still get our autonomy from the monarchs. Like, yeah, it was actually kind of a brilliant solution too, to have mm. some way to establish an independent country without going to war and completely separating from, from Britain. Yeah. We have, avo- we avoided a civil war. That's brilliant. I mean, they mm. didn't get it all right. And I'm not saying it was good or perfect, but like credit no. where it's due, it was a hard problem. They did all right. Well, and the Americans set it up so that they would eventually have to fight a civil war yeah. about slavery. And anyone who says, well, no, it was about territorial expansion and stuff, shut up. It was about slavery. <laughs> and so, and it was about, oh, it was about economic systems. Yeah, slavery. Yeah. And so- The economic system of the time. And so they couldn't get rid of it if they wanted to set up the thing. You have to, like, politics means the art of what's possible. And so at that time, that was what was possible. And was it 15 years after that, the uh, British got rid of slavery in their own, like in their own territories and in their empire. And they're like, this is dumb because you had people who were rebelling against it saying, this is what needs to change. And they existed, their commonwealth changed itself as it should have. But strangely, they banned it domestically while still engaging in it abroad. Yeah. Which is a really odd way of going about saying that something's morally repugnant, but as long as we're doing it somewhere else, it's okay. But I guess that's just like people had to grow out of it, I guess. Like you can't just change people's thinking patterns overnight. No. And Piketty's not Piketty. Uh, he wrote a different book. Um, Steven Pinker in one of his books essentially says like progress might just have to happen one death at a time. And it's it's macabre and you don't want to say that but you know um one of my wife's relatives over christmas uh said something very blatantly anti-semitic as a joke but it wasn't really a joke he's like he's saying something about oh if i just put up too many christmas decorations all the money's going to be going to those uh to the jews and he's just and we're just all like okay that that opinion hasn't 
traversed the generations. And he's not in a place where he's going to start any anti-Semitic you know, politics. It's not really but thanks where to they time, People like you and me instantly recognize that as an insane, antiqu- antiquated idea. Yeah. And it's because we were raised in a more enlightened society. Like our teachers were completely anti-racism. So we grow up thinking it's completely normal to, to like right. zero tolerance to racism just everywhere, right? But you got to remember, not only was that not there for people just one generation prior, it was so prevalent that they would speak openly about it at like bars and restaurants. And like, it's yeah. not that long ago that segregation was still an issue, but it, and there's it's still a whole generation of people dying before it actually got implemented. Right. And we like this, like, and we do our we are taking like two steps forward one step back you get people who are still racist obviously yeah. and then you have people like you know ibram x kendi who is like you need to fight racism with counter racism or counter prejudice and so anti-racism is just literally racism against white people and, and that's exactly like, why i object to it because it perpetuates mm. instead of letting it it just fizzle off in a generation by establishing yeah. an anti-racist platform you're making sure that that racism sticks around for another generation right and this is something i i kind of want to bring it back but yeah sorry tangent no no i do want this is a good example of things that are possible in a commonwealth uh and so he defines now a monarchy or an absolute monarchy he sees as just an extension an elaborate extension of the state of nature where someone's just stealing from a whole bunch of other people because reasons that he's convinced of. Now, you can't, in, in a monarchy, you can't do, um, like the, the opinion does, it will change based on what the, what is it, it forced on them. In our society, we can say things like that. We can have these discussions. We can have YouTube. Like in, Okay, I guess the question is, is China a state of nature because they're a dictatorship with, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics, but uh, they aren't allowed dictatorship. To... Yeah, it's fascism. There's oh, man, we told socialist that... or communist about it. No. Look how it's... rich the richest are there and look at how the, the leader is. There's just, it's not communism. It looks a lot like Nazi Germany. Yes, it does. <laughs> Oh, Krupp. Yeah, let's 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 get together. You can be rich. What about what about the Slavs? What about the Slavs? <laughs> <laughs> and so you you have that. So you're you have one point something million people living in a state of nature where their rights aren't are being thing, and they're not allowed to they're not allowed to do what we're doing right now. And what like this leverages that capability by the use of our natural rights me having property to own this mic own this this camera which i got backwards um speak my the use of my liberty i guess the the all further property the 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 use of this house and the books to read that i can own without recourse and having people come you know gestapo knock on my door uh the ability to discuss it the free use of my mind and my mouth and my vocal cords and the and the freedom to put it online and the freedom to accept criticism from people on in the comments and then the natural right i have to not be killed just willy-nilly for this and the 
I guess health, I need my health to do this, but you can't do, I'm not, I don't have to worry about the government killing me. I don't have to worry about the government taking my organs and selling them to rich people in Singapore. I don't have to worry about any of that. And so we leverage our own talent to explain this fundamental document um, through the use of our rights to other people so that they can, you know, more effectively use their rights in our society. And so that's why locks and helps like, sorry, hopefully it helps budding countries and and democracies like India, um, because not everybody in India is going to get the same political education. They're going to get either none or vastly close to none. Yeah. (laughs) Just because the population hasn't, it hasn't developed yet. You know, like they don't have um, curriculums that are spread across the entire country that are self-similar. They don't have, uh, the general population isn't as engaged in politics because they can't be yet. They're the world's biggest democracy for a reason. They got better voter turnouts than we do because the people are engaged and and they're passionate about it, but it's Mm -hmm. new. It's going to take time, but hopefully this type of prose or rumination or, um, discussion can help people in countries like that, not just our own, but obviously our own too, but help people in budding democracies develop their own better democracies. Like, yeah. I got oh, nothing better democracy. anybody else's country. I want them to have fully the functioning better, democracies, even if it's better than mine, because then I can the, model my country after them. Like, if Kenya gets, if Kenya gets rich and starts having, uh, you know, leveraging a free society and allows its people to do and becomes the best Kenya it could be, that can only make my life better. Yeah, I don't good know. for everybody. And at home, I think the cynicism towards, um, and this is kind of one of the, the, the fears I had going into this was the cynicism towards works like this, um, was, uh, was kind of off putting cause there's a lot of cynicism towards our society right now. There's a lot of cynicism. And some of it is if you watch people like um, Yuri Bezhmenov, who detailed that uh, a lot of what was happening in the 70s in Canada was a result of his establishment of uh, cynicism in Quebec. And um, how you, there's a lot of propaganda coming out of the, um, what we used to call the second world or the communist world, where they're trying to make us a manageable threat instead of an overwhelming obstacle to what they want. Because NATO alliance is the largest power on this world. Don't kid yourself. Um, And to weaken it, it's easier to, you know, instill cynicism. And for some reason, and the cynicism often is built on real things. We do have a history of racism. We do have a history of, you know, doing things, but that doesn't mean that you can go back to these things and no, Locke was just a white man. No, no, read. You have to read it, take it for at face value and on its own merits and discount it as you will. I want to do, if I would do another one of these, I want to do uh, Machiavelli, the Prince, which is a little more of a controversial book. And, uh, and there's a couple others that I'd be interested in it's doing. Understatement but... of 2022. <laughs> Which one? Machiavelli, the prince, is a little bit uh, controversial. Yeah. So 
the it's worth reading and you can't just throw it away and enlightenment thinkers are getting a very bad rap these days uh for the most infantile of reasons and it bugs me so i'm doing this and i think what bugs me about it is the laziness of it every opportunity to be educated and to fix the problems that you're you're blaming on everybody else in politics and you'd rather tear the system down for no other reason than you're too lazy to get involved like learn law oh that's a lot yeah so what do you think writing a brand new law would look like yeah (laughs) it would be much harder than changing the one you've already got if you own firearms you have to become a bit of a minor legal expert because it's just like okay why do i have to have a paper instead of a digital document when i'm transporting restricted okay hold on that subsection whatever and so you do have to learn it and this is and it seems good because like oh firearms can kill people it's like yeah and they're loud and they can if they explode like i could lose my hand but at the same time like you need to know food law why do they put those things on the top and like why does your society do what it does um and yeah you can become a bit of an expert or even worse the uh the people that go around quoting uh marks or go around quoting authors who they just simply haven't read like i had met tons of marxists who hadn't actually read the communist manifesto which is if you haven't actually gotten into it only about this big. It's not I a big document. Das Kapital. I never read that one. Oh, Das Kapital is like that. Yeah, I said that. <laughs> it's thick. And that's more of a economic thing. This is the, I've been meaning to get around to it, but <laughs> it's it's I say that tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah. Um there's better places to spend your time. Even if you are a Marxist. Das Kapital is an investment. (laughs) Um, But so is uh, this one here, Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations. And uh, most people just quote the first 20 pages of that one. (laughs) And that that actually goes through with a lot of what we we quote, like Darwinism too. Yeah. Like a lot of people misquote Darwinism. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's so straightforward in high school, but like even teachers of high school misquote it. Oh yeah. And you know, he like the whole thing where he never said uh survival of a fittest, but it's in his work, but it's not really true or accurate, but then it's just, it, it's so cloudy uh, that it, it's but meaningless. It's taken out of context. If you look at yeah. it in context, it makes perfect sense. And there's no equivocating whatsoever. It's like literally just talking about one thing, getting one trait that other trait or that others of its own kind don't have. Like it's very, very specific to an evolving system. It has nothing to do with whether you got white skin so you're smarter or dumber than other people. It has nothing to do with any of that. But I think that's the problem. Like we talked about this a lot with um, our effort episode. So I just yeah, I'll, I'll do a quick refresh. Go check that episode out. Be informed, and if you really care as much as you say you care, not you, but like people out there. If you care about the causes you claim to care about, put in the effort, like prove that you actually care, know about Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Don't just quote blogs and headlines, like actually read something thoughtful and then stop and think about that thoughtful prose you just read. Because that's what's gonna help you understand other people, regardless of whether you change your opinion or not. 
knowing how to think about a really complex problem is the first step towards understanding other people's approach to a complex problem that you disagree with. Right. And living in the society, the, the benefit of that is that you're giving yourself ammo and like these books are ammo. If you understand what Locke is saying, and you understand how it fits into the context of your society or how you want, if you're living in a, I don't know, if you're living in Mexico and it's, I'm sorry, Mexico is not a happy country right now and you want to change it for the better. Well, you have to understand what you want and reading someone like Locke gives you ammunition. If you're trying to change your local state or provincial law, or you're trying to challenge the government with something it's doing, this will give you ammunition to couch your uh, arguments in a with a philosophical foundation. And so, because if you're just saying, I want change, well, what's wrong? Well, uh, I, I don't want to be this poor. Well, you could work. Well, no, it's because there's this, this law. Okay, well, that's actually different. You know, it says that I can't work. Well, why not? You know, because, you know, my arm's broken and there's a law against people with arms breaking, you know, doing labor. It's like, oh, it seems like an oversight. So the problem here in this situation would be someone's right to uh, attain property and their liberty to work is being infringed. And so you go to the government and say, my right of, you know, my, my, my freedom, this aspect of my freedom which is a natural right that I have is being infringed by the government. You're not protecting that right. You're infringing upon it. And so the government will have to take it under advisement. And so this is what you need to do. You'll be more successful if you understand the way the society works because it is complex. It's got hundreds of years of precedent that goes into it. And this is only one of the texts that it draws upon. Like, if and this is only one aspect of it this is the governmental aspect it doesn't cover uh economics it doesn't cover um it doesn't actually cover foreign policy that well it just says here's the first principles of what a society like ours should be and knowing your first principles allows you to work from somewhere so i think that's i think i'm good for that Oh, Chris's voice is gone. Apparently. Um, so um, I'm going to put the link for uh, a freely available PDF on this book online. Um, you can find audio versions of it on YouTube, but I'll link a couple so you guys can get to it. Uh, and yeah, if you have any, if you got confused or you need any clarification or you have retorts, then put them in the comments. Or different interpretations, ideas, like everything. Yeah. We should just talk about this shit a lot more often. <laughs> yeah. So, Not you and me, we always talk about this, but yeah. I mean, like, we as a country. Yeah, and I guess one of the reasons I came to this, and the reason I talk about it a lot, is because I actually like what this does. I like how it doesn't discriminate. I like how it... Um, this is just a personal note, I guess. I like the idea of, you know, government for the people, you know, by the people, that kind of stuff. I like the, I like the language of, you know, the, you know, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, 
we take these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights, that kind of stuff, because it lets me work and it lets me work in a place where I don't need to get into each other, anybody else's business. I like the society I live in. I just want to understand it. So I and guess we should all be trying to make it better because if we, if we believe like sincerely that we're, we're perfect then we're, we're no. misguided. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way that this is the best we can be. Oh yeah. But that means there's room for growth. That's optimistic. It's not cynicism. So four steps forward, three steps back. Lots of booze in between. Yep. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys for for watching. Uh, You want to tell them where they can find all our other stuff? I'd like to try. Uh, ChrisDriver.com slash feed slash RSS feed for the XML. Um, Subscribe to the RSS feed. It's in the description as always. Uh, we're on YouTube and um, what am I call it? iTunes and and Twitter. We're getting active on Twitter and Facebook now. Yeah, I'm probably not going to be on Twitter. I'm trying to stay away from it. No, no, you're uh, handling share. the Facebook for me. Yeah, I've, I've got that, See, which I should handle. It works. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to go through Smith, but um, leave a like, share with your friends. Uh, the better we can game the algorithm. The, the more effort I have to put in and the better my arguments get. So, <laughs> and um, we're working on an app too. So oh, if yes. you stuck around this long, you get inside scoop. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Easier access. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time. Peace out. Assalamualaikum. <laughs>